We're in a series of messages called the plot twist, the story of Joseph. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. And the sermon notes are on our website as well if you'd like to follow along. But I'll also put the notes up on the screen for you uh, today. Uh, What was your favorite childhood game when you were little? I know for some it was board games, maybe Monopoly or Life. Maybe for you, your favorite game as a kid was an athletic game like football or soccer. Or maybe it was just some silly game, you know, like hide and seek. I know that was one of my favorites that we played when I was real little with my brother and my sister and our cousins when they would all come over. We would play hide and seek. And we would pick out who would be the seeker. I, re- I would rather be the one who hides. I, so I like to hide more than to seek. And so we would pick out someone to be the seeker. The rest of us would run through the house and we would try to find the best hiding place that we could. Maybe it was under the dining room table or maybe the hiding place was under the bed. Or sometimes I would hide behind the curtains in the living room. I soon found out they could see my feet sticking out from under the curtains, and so that was not really a good hiding place. The seeker would then go to a corner of the room and put their face against the wall and close their eyes, and they would count backwards from 20. And whenever they reached zero, they would then yell out, Ready or not, here I come. And they would start seeking all the ones who were hiding. And how many of you ever played that game as a kid? Anybody else play? See, all of you played hide and seek. Very good. You know, we still play that game as adults. Uh, Now it's not a silly game. Now it's a spiritual game. We play a spiritual game of hide and seek. Often, we seek to hide things about ourselves from ourselves. There are things in our past that we regret. There are sinful choices that we've made. There are mistakes that we've made. There are people that we've hurt. And we choose to hide things about ourselves from ourselves. We don't want to face it. We don't want to own up to it. We don't want to deal with it. So we play hide and seek. Many people are hiding from those poor choices they made in getting involved in relationships. And they knew the relationships weren't healthy. And if they could go back in time, they would fix a lot of that. But they hide from those poor choices they made so many years ago. Some people are hiding from those college years when they partied more than they studied and they flunked out of school. Some people are hiding from how they allowed alcohol or drugs to take control of their lives and ruin so much that was good in their relationships and in their health. Some people are hiding from their unfaithfulness that destroyed their first marriage. And we hide We hide things about ourselves from ourselves because it's too hard sometimes to face up to what we've done. And we're good at finding hiding places. We like to hide in our hobbies or we hide in our career or we hide behind a bottle or we hide behind a new relationship. Many hide behind even religion and staying busy in doing churchy things. And really what we're doing is we're hiding from our past so we don't have to deal with it. So we don't have to face it. And not only do we hide things about ourselves from ourselves, we often hide things about ourselves from God. We seek to hide from God because we know we've not lived up to his standard. We know we've not done what he wanted in so many ways. We know we've disappointed God. We know we've broken his rules. And so we hide from God. Sometimes, rather than facing up to what we've done wrong, we hide from God and we stop doing things we used to do. We stop going to church. 
We stop reading our Bible. We stop praying. We stop hanging out with other followers of Jesus. And if things get bad enough, and if we want to hide deeply enough, we may even come to a point where we tell people and we tell ourselves, I don't really believe in God anymore. And you know what we're doing? We're just hiding. We're hiding things about ourselves from ourselves. And we're hiding things about ourselves from God. And that never works. I remember an old preacher once said to me, Ricky, wherever you go, there you are. And that was his way of saying you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. And listen, the bad news is you can't hide from God. The good news is you don't have to. God is the seeker. And he seeks us, not because he's on our case, but because he's on our side. God knows that when we refuse to deal with our past, our past will haunt our present. When we refuse to own up to the things we've done wrong and come clean with those things and make amends for those things, it will sabotage every relationship in the present. Our relationship with other people and our relationship with God. So God seeks us not to condemn us, but actually to free us. He wants to help us get over our past, to get past our past. And there are people who are living on a guilt trip, and they feel condemned, and they feel the shame, and they feel the weight of their past. But you don't have to stay on that guilt trip. You don't have to keep playing the spiritual game of hide and seek from God because God wants to help you. And why do we play that game? Why don't we just come out and admit and come out and come clean with what we've done? Well, there's one word I think that summarizes why we play this spiritual game of hide and seek. It's the word guilt. We feel guilty. Guilt is that Strong emotion that you have whenever you've hurt someone or you've harmed a relationship with someone. Guilt is that feeling that you have that you can't escape from whenever you know you've done wrong. And God has given each one of us the capacity to feel guilt. And guilt brings fear. Guilt makes us afraid we're going to be found out. We're afraid that others will judge us or condemn us. We become fearful that others might repay us for the wrong that we've done. Guilt even makes us fear that God could never forgive us. And guilt can make us believe that every present problem I face must be God's punishment for my past. And guilt can be a bad thing if it leads to fear and to condemnation. But did you know good could come from guilt? I'm not talking about when you've not done anything wrong and someone wants to make you feel guilty. You don't need that. You don't take that. You don't accept that. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about people who want to heap guilt on you when you don't deserve it. I'm talking about the true guilt we feel when we know we've messed up, when we know we've done wrong. And listen, even if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're maybe spiritual, but you're not sure what you believe about Jesus and the Bible and church and all that, listen, you too acknowledge Guilt is a real thing. I mean, all of us know what it feels like to lay awake at night in our bed, regretting some things we said that day that we shouldn't have said to someone we love, or regretting losing our temper. All of us know what it is to lay in bed at night rehearsing what we did and what we should have done. And that's the feeling of guilt that is expressing itself, that's coming out. And there again, 
God wants to bring something good out of that guilt because guilt, even though it's a powerful emotion and it's a negative emotion in many ways, guilt can also be used by God to make us aware that we've done something wrong, to make us more open to admitting that wrong, to giving us more motivation to amending relationships that we've hurt or that we've harmed. And guilt can even make us realize, I don't want to go down that road anymore. I want to get off this guilt trip. I don't want to live my life making decisions that I always regret. And so good can come out of your guilt. That's where, again, our stories of our lives intersect with the lives of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And particularly today, as we're going to see, our lives intersect with the stories of his brother's lives. In Genesis chapter 42, we are reintroduced to Joseph's brothers 20 years after they have sold their 17-year-old brother into slavery. The last time we saw them, they had left him for dead in an empty well, and then they decided to sell him into slavery. That's the last time we meet these brothers until this chapter. And for 20-plus years... They have been on a guilt trip. They've been trying to hide from God, hide from their emotions, hide from their father, hide from each other what they've done wrong. But you can run, but you can't hide. And there's a skeleton in Egypt's closet that is about to come out, and they're going to have to face what they've done wrong in their past. And you know, the good thing that God wants to do in making them face their guilt as painful as it is, is the same good thing he wants to do in your life as well. And I want us to discover that good that can come out of our guilt together as we walk through Genesis chapter 42. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Genesis 42. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'll also put the scriptures on the screen if you would like to follow along that way. But in Genesis chapter 42... Verses 1 through 5, we read these words. When Jacob, this is Joseph's father, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at each other? Why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain there for us that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Verse 5, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. The last time we left off, Joseph was in Egypt. And then as this chapter opens up, it's like the scene changes in the play. And now the scene shifts from Joseph in Egypt to Jacob and his sons in Canaan. The last time we saw Joseph having been sold into slavery, having been in prison for many years for a crime he did not commit, and then having been elevated by Pharaoh himself to the position of viceroy, of prime minister of Israel, we see Joseph in Egypt doing well. But now the spotlight falls on Jacob and his sons in Canaan who are not doing well. Joseph is living large in Egypt, but Jacob and Joseph's brothers are about to starve in Canaan. That famine of seven years 
that God revealed to Joseph would happen has come. There were seven good years, followed then now by the seven bad years. And so there we find Jacob running out of food. All these mouths of his sons and their families that he has to feed. And he hears news that there is grain for sale in Egypt, the breadbasket of the ancient world. And he then looks at his sons and he sees his 11 sons standing there, virtual paralysis, doing nothing to save their father and to save the family. And he says, what's wrong with you boys? Why are you just standing there looking at one another? Why don't you get some gumption and get up and go to Egypt and buy some food for this family before we die? And the word Egypt was the last place the brothers wanted to think about. For over 20 years, they have avoided any conversation about Egypt. And you can't blame them. It was Egypt, after all, that was the destination of those Midianite traders to whom they sold their 17-year-old brother into slavery. And for over 20 years, when the word Egypt and the place Egypt came up in polite conversation, they quickly changed the subject. Because Egypt was the epicenter of their sin against their brother and against their father. Egypt was the lie that they had to keep others from finding out about. And so they don't want to talk about Egypt. And dad says, you've got to go. So at this point, Jacob has 11 sons at home. And he sends 10, but he keeps the youngest, Benjamin, home. And we're told that he was afraid that if he allowed Benjamin to go, something bad might happen to him. He's already lost one son. He's not going to lose another son. And you need to know who this Benjamin is. Unlike the other ten brothers, Benjamin is the full brother of Joseph. The others were half-brothers. They had a different mother than Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin's mom, according to Genesis chapter 35, is none other than Rachel. The wife whom Jacob loved. I've got one wife I love too. And, uh, but in Jacob's life, he had two wives. Remember, he had Leah, whom he didn't really love. He didn't want her, but he got tricked into marrying her. And then later, he finally got Rachel, the wife whom he really loved. And God gave Rachel a son, Joseph. And then Jacob lost Joseph, as far as he knew. And then later, in Genesis 35, we read that Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, but she died in childbirth. Benjamin is the last living tie that this grieving husband and father has to Rachel. And he's not letting Benjamin, even though he's now in his 20s, out of his sight. You can go, but you're not taking Ben. And so Ben has to stay home. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. If this were a movie or a play, it'd be dumb, da dum dum. I mean, whoa, we're going to Egypt. Well, guess who's in charge of the whole land of Egypt to sell grain to people during this famine? None other than Joseph. Little do the brothers know that their little brother is alive and well. And so it says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. 
Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Here they come into the presence of the very one whom they had sold into slavery over 20 years earlier. The one that they thought by this point was dead. And little do they know, he is not dead. He is actually large and in charge. And they bow down before him, not knowing that the one they're bowing before and looking up to is the very one who over 20 years ago looked up to them from an empty pit and looked to them as he was carried off into slavery 200 miles from home. And there they are. He sees them. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. It's been over 20 years. Joseph, by this point, is 40 or so years old. He was 17 when they sold him into slavery. He was 30 years when Pharaoh made him viceroy. Then came the seven years of good and plenty, and now we're into the seven years of famine. We don't know how long into the famine we are at this point, but Joseph is at least 40 years old. Not only has he aged since the last time they saw him, remember he has been enmeshed in Egyptian culture. After Pharaoh promoted him, Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian wife. He now has a family of his own. He has learned the Egyptian language. Listen, he, he talks like the Egyptians. He looks like an Egyptian. He even walks like an Egyptian. I had to say it. And so no wonder they don't recognize Joseph. And so he starts treating them harshly. Where do you come from? And he's wanting to gauge their hearts. Are these boys different than when I last saw them? Verse 9. As they're bowing before Joseph, it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Do you remember that from way back in Genesis chapter 37? When he was a kid and God gave him a dream that one day all my brothers will bow down before me. He remembers that dream. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. I think there's something interesting going on here in how he's treating them and what he says they're up to. You are spies and you've come to see in the Hebrew the nakedness of the land of Egypt. You see, in the Hebrew culture, to be stripped of your robe as a man was to be left virtually naked and exposed and shamed. And I think Joseph not only remembers the dream that he had, he also remembers how his brothers responded to that dream. When they caught him off guard, stripped him of that robe of many colors given to him by his father and threw him naked into a ditch and a pit wanting to kill him and then selling him into slavery. And it brings back that memory. I was once stripped naked, and that's why you're here, to see the nakedness, the vulnerability, the shame of Egypt, so you can have an advantage over Egypt. Verse 10, And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. Verse 11, We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. 
Your servants have never been spies. I wonder how Joseph must have felt when he heard them claim to be honest men. He probably thought to himself, were you honest when you went home with my robe dipped in animal blood and told my father I had been killed by a wild animal in the wilderness? Were you honest men when friends of the family would say, I see your dad. He has never gotten over losing Joseph. What happened when you were all out there and you kept telling the lie? Were you honest men then? Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. Verse 13, and they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. They said, no, no, we're not spies. We're all the sons of one man. He lives in Canaan. That's where we're from. You see 10 of us right here before you. Our other brother is back home. Our younger brother is with dad. And they cannot bring themselves to say what they think. They can't face up to the consequences of their choices. They can't say, and our other brother Joseph is dead. They just say, and one brother is no more. I can only imagine how Joseph felt when he heard that. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. You claim to be honest, I'll put you to the test. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Espionage was a capital crime. He's saying, if you don't do this, you will all be put to death. Verse 17, and he put them all together in custody for three days. Threw them in jail. Probably the same prison he had been in for years before Pharaoh rescued him. I don't know what Joseph is doing here, but a part of me thinks he's kind of giving them a taste of their own medicine. You threw me in a pit, I'll throw you in prison and let you see how it feels. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. He's changing his mind now. He says, for I fear God. He's had a little change of heart. He threw them all in prison. His first proposal was, I'm going to keep all nine of you and let one go home and get the youngest. But now he's going to change his mind because I think God is telling him, listen, what you're doing, you need to think. Verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So he says, okay, I'm going to change my plan. Instead of keeping nine of you and sending one, I'll keep one. And I'll send nine. And I'll do even more than that. I'll give you grain because I know your family needs it back home. So I'll give you grain. But I expect to see that youngest brother here to prove you were honest. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are, say the word out loud, guilty. 
In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. They say this to each other in the presence of Joseph. As far as they know, just an Egyptian official selling grain. But for the us, the reader of the story, it is the first time that we are told how Joseph felt and how he responded when his brothers did that to him at 17. It is a picture that they have to finally come clean on. The reason this distress has come to us is because we threw him in a pit and he begged for his life and we didn't show him mercy. Can you imagine how cruel people can be to each other? And not just people, family. It is heartbreaking. It is gut-wrenching. And I'm going to give you a little word that you probably have already figured out. Seven, eight centuries have not made it any better. We are still cruel to one another. We are still merciless to one another. It is amazing how cruel family members can be to each other. How cruel neighbors can be to each other. How cruel political opponents can be to one another. How cruel different people of different races or different nationalities can be to one another. But they finally have to come face to face with their guilt. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against this boy, against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Benjamin was the oldest brother, and he said, No, 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 let's don't kill him. And he intended to rescue Joseph way back then. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. This whole time there's been a conversation where he says, where do you come from? He spoke Egyptian. An interpreter would then speak it in Hebrew so that the boys could understand. They would give their answer and then the interpreter would speak back to Joseph in, an, in Egyptian. They did not know that he heard everything they just said and not only heard it, he understood it. Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. I can't imagine the emotions that must be running through Joseph's heart as he's met his brother so unexpectedly in this day, as he has heard them recount in sordid details how they threw him in a pit, how that they listened to him begging for his life, naked and afraid, and they did nothing to show him mercy, and instead of killing him, they might as well have killed him because they sold him into slavery where the life expectancy was just a few short years. And it's more than he can bear. By this point, Joseph has thought that he's gotten over a lot of this. In the last chapter, it says, when he had children, he named one of them, God has blessed me and has allowed me to forget. But now it's all come rushing back and he's bursting out in tears and he walks away so they don't see him. Maybe you've been that way. You were hurt and you thought you were over it. Or maybe you lost a loved one and you thought you've really worked through your grief. But one song on the radio brings it all rushing back. One, one visit to an old place you used to go brings all those emotions back. And he weeps. It says, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
Put Simeon in chains. Verse 25, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Verse 26, Then they loaded their donkeys. You should read that in the King James Version. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. Verse 27, And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, What is this that God has done to us? I don't know about you, but when I find money in my coat pocket, I'm excited. I get excited. I tell everybody in the house, there was $20 in my coat pocket. But they're scared silly. Why? Because they think God is punishing them for their past. When we come home with all of this grain plus the money our father gave us to buy it, he's going to think we stole it. And now when Pharaoh finds out that we have the grain and our money, he's going to think we stole the grain from him. Either way, we are doomed. And did you hear what they asked? What is this thing that God has done for us? That's what happens when you run from your past and you try to run from your guilt is you then start interpreting every bad thing that happens to you in life as God's punishment. Listen, God doesn't punish his children. Jesus took all your punishment on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah 55, by his stripes we are healed. But God does chasten his kids like any good parent will when they've done wrong. And God does allow us to face up to the consequences of our choices. But don't you see what God is doing? God is using their guilty consciences to drive them to confront what they did was wrong, to finally own up to it, to finally stop making excuses for it, and their guilt is driving them to God. And that, my friend, is the thing that God wants to do in your life. Whenever you're feeling guilty... There are three things you can do with it. You can bury your guilt and play hide and seek and try to run from your guilt. Or you can blame others. Well, it was their fault and if they hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. Or you can beat yourself up in condemnation and never forgive yourself for what you've done wrong. But there's a fourth option that God wants you to choose and that is you can bring it to God. When you've done wrong, when you've messed up, when your past has caught up with you, you can bring it to God. Because God wants to help you and heal you and forgive you and show you mercy. God wants you to confess it, not to conceal it. Listen, we don't have time to finish this chapter or the next several chapters this morning. There's so much that could be said. How will Joseph respond to his brothers? Will he keep treating them harshly? Will he throw them all in prison once he gets them all under his control? What's he going to do? We're going to have to come back and we'll figure that out together. And will there be reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers? That's all important. But the most important thing, that before all that can happen, these guys have to get right with God. 
And if you're feeling the weight of your guilt and your shame and your past, the first step is to get right with God. Yes, you need to restore some relationships. Yes, you need to make amends for things you've done wrong. Yes, you need to start over and fix some things that are in your power to fix them. But before that happens, your first priority has to be to get right with God. One of my favorite verses besides John 3.16 is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And it's my favorite because I need it so often. The promise of the Apostle John is if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful that verse is in the Bible? That word confess in the Greek language in which John is writing is really a composite word. It's like two words crammed together. The first part of the word is homo, H-O-M-O, which means the same. And the second word is logeo, L-O-G-E-O, which means word. So to confess is to say the same word. We don't make excuses for our sin. We don't dress up our sin. We don't blame other people for our sin. We don't bury our sin. Instead, we say the same thing about our sin as God says. We say, God, I am guilty. God, I was wrong. God, I shouldn't have done that. God, I did mistreat them. God, I am so sorry for what I've done. I confess it to you rather than try to conceal it. And here's the good news. When you do that, you find a God who is merciful says that God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He'll never turn a contrite heart away. And he is just in forgiving you. He's righteous in forgiving you and cleansing you. He doesn't sweep your sin under the rug and say, let's don't talk about it anymore. He took your sin and publicly placed it on his son, Jesus, who died for us on the cross of Calvary, who took the punishment for all the wrong that we have ever done or ever will do. And God dealt with our sin at the cross of Calvary and through the resurrection of Jesus. That's how he can be righteous and still forgive sinners like you and like me. And he not only forgives us and cancels our debt. He cleanses us. He puts that robe of righteousness back on us. That sin has stripped off of us. And now he sees us not as filthy sinners with a terrible sordid past. But he sees us as his children. Forgiven and accepted in Christ. You can hide in your guilt, friend, and miss God's mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. Or you can let your guilt drive you to God. And guilt is good when it drives you to God. But it's got to start there with you and God. Can you imagine what will happen if this morning some moms and some dads said, I know I've got to do some things better in my family with my children, but first I've got to get right with God about my past and I've got to bring it to God can you imagine a husband and a wife saying, I know our marriage isn't perfect and there's some things we need to work on, but my first step in making the marriage right is making my fellowship right with my heavenly Father and bringing to Him what I'm ashamed of in my past. Can you imagine what would happen if some teenagers in this room said, I know my heart and my attitude and my actions have not been right towards my parents, but before I work on that relationship, I've got to get right with God and I've got to tell God what I've been doing is wrong. And I've got to receive his forgiveness and his mercy. Can you imagine what would happen in this city, in this state, in this nation, if people would say, 
I know I've got to work on my relationship and my attitude and my prejudices, but before I do that, I've got to get right with a holy God who is waiting to forgive me and to cleanse me. And then I'll be in a position to make amends, to work on what's broken, to let God's Spirit work through me. That's where it begins. And friend, that's what I'm going to ask you to do. Is there anybody here today? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and I'm going to let you go, but is there anybody here today that needs to get off the guilt trip? You've been running, you've been hiding, but you need to bring it to God. And when you bring it to God, you can know with confidence that he's a way maker. You need forgiveness, he'll give you forgiveness. You need to be cleansed, he'll cleanse you and make you right with him. But you got to bring it to him. Guilt is good when it drives you to God. I think that's why you're here this morning. I think that's why God put this message on our hearts today, is he wants us to come to him. 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 Will you do that today? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I thank you for this message in my own life, in my own heart. And I thank you for being a gracious, merciful, loving, forgiving, cleansing God. God, we've all got a past that we're ashamed of. We've all got decisions we wish we could take back. We've all got issues in our lives that we regret. But rather than condemning us, you want to forgive and cleanse. And we thank you for that. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room today that needs to name something in their life between you and them, that they would do it and seek your forgiveness and cleansing. And when they walk out of this room today, they will not walk out still doubting, still questioning, still thinking everything bad happens must be God's punishment. But instead, they will walk out of this room today taking your word and leaning on your promise that I confessed, therefore I am forgiven and I am cleansed and I am right with God. Yes, there may be things I've got to work on. Yes, I may have to rebuild some relationships if possible. Yes, I may need to repay some people for the things I did wrong and try to restore some things. But I know I'm forgiven and I know I'm cleansed. And Father, I thank you for that in the power of Jesus' name. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that needs Jesus as their Savior, they would realize that they too, if they will just tell Jesus, I am a sinner Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. And today I turn from my sin and I confess I'm a sinner and I confess my faith in you as my Savior. And I want you as my Lord. And you have promised to give them the gift of eternal life. And we'll rejoice in that. It's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.